you are anxious and worried about many things. How many of you feel like that describes your life this past week? Um, this past month? Maybe even this past year. It's been pretty crazy. And I mean, as I took time to reflect on this passage and how it was speaking into my own life, those words just jumped off the page at me. And I know many of us can relate to that. Um, I've always seemed to live my life going at full throttle, always squeezing every bare second, you know, out of the day. I could make one more phone call, cramming it full of good things, sometimes. Um, But when I get into bed, I I still sometimes have this crippling self-analytical perspective. You know, I could have done one more phone call. I could have done one more way of serving. I, I could have cared more. I could have said more. And many of you can relate with that situation in our fast-paced lives. And many of you can relate with what Michael Iaconelli says in his book, Messy Spirituality. He says, what keeps many of us from growing, uh, growing is not sin, but speed. We're going as fast as we can, living life at a dizzying speed, and God is nowhere to be found. We're not rejecting God, we just don't have time for him. We've lost him in the blurred landscape as we rush to church. We don't struggle with the Bible, but with the clock. It's not that we're too decadent, we're too busy. It's not sinning too much that's killing our souls, it's our schedules that's annihilating us. And most of us don't come home at night staggering drunk. Instead, we come home staggering tired, worn out, exhausted and drained because we live too fast. Does that describe any of you this morning? Does that tell your story as of late? I mean, I guess that's just part of living in a technologically advanced age, right? Um, That's the problem. We we can't turn off our iPhones. We can't turn off our iPads and our laptops. And we may talk a lot about busyness and worry as problems that are uniquely based in our fast-based, technologically driven 21st century culture. But in reality... These aren't technological problems. In reality, this isn't a cultural problem, but instead this is a human problem that we see here. Right here in Luke, we see that worry, anxiety, and distractions were just as much a part of the first century world as they are the 21st century world. It looked different. We were consumed by different things, you know. We didn't have the iPhone. We had the eyeball. I mean, it was, you know, very, very different in technological ages. Uh, And this begs the question, um, then if these problems are felt by everyone, regardless of your cultural standing or time in history, is there anything we can really do about it? If it's always been a problem, no matter what our culture's like, is there really anything that we can do about this? Do we just tell ourselves, ah, it's going to be okay, but deep down, we're ever wondering if life's ever going to slow down, if it's ever going to actually be okay. We try to read books, mastering getting things done, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. And these resources, they may be really helpful at managing our tasks, but what about our relationships? Those friendships that are fizzling because we don't cultivate or take the time to nurture them. Our child is sick, but we're so consumed with work and other activities that we actually don't get to be there to care. Or we have a newborn on the way. This is me speaking here in my life and Life is crazy, and then you have the the accelerated realities of trying to get ready for a little one to enter the home. David Allen and Franklin Covey, you know, they, they aren't that much help in alleviating the worry and the anxiety that we see here. 
And what we find in Luke is that Jesus, he has the key to facing life's greatest worries and taking and tackling life's most crippling anxieties. Throughout his life, he points to one thing. One thing that I think is critical to transform a restless heart to a restful heart, regardless of the storms that are around him or her. And what's that one thing? It's dependence. Dependence. Now, I know in the psychology world and actually in the community development world, dependence is a bad word. It's not a good goal to go for. But this morning, we enter into the Gospel of Luke, and we'll see Jesus gives us three aspects of a God-centered dependence. And these three are the priority of dependence, the pattern of dependence, and the approach of dependence. The priority of dependence, the pattern of dependence, and the approach of dependence. Would you turn with me, if you haven't already, uh, to Luke chapter 10? If you don't have a Bible, I know we have some way over there on the guest table. Please don't be scared to go over there and get yourself a Bible. Um, we value God's Word here. We ground God's Word and, and our teaching in what God has revealed about Himself in Scripture. So when we come to Luke chapter 10, we see that before Jesus talks about prayer, He highlights two women. Mary and Martha, and he shows us the priority of dependence. The first woman, Martha, um, is a person that many of us can relate to, right? She's getting things done. She's providing for her guests. She's living into what her culture portrayed was expected of her as a successful woman and caring for the home. She's fast-paced in her pace, and no one would ever mistake her as a lazy person. But where's Mary? Where do we find Mary? She's sitting. She's listening. She's learning. Leaning into every word that Jesus says and so encapsulated that she can't pull herself away from the presence of Christ. And Martha, she gets frustrated at Mary. Um, many of us know this story. This isn't new to a lot of us. And I mean, there's, there's work to be, to be done. And, and when we get overwhelmed, when our lives become consumed with endless doing and doing and doing, even if the good, even if the doing is for good things, we start to pity ourselves in creating stories that we're victims. We say things like, look at all I have to carry. Look at all I have to do. No one else is working as hard as I am. No one appreciates what I'm doing. And we slowly create this victim mentality and this story where everyone is against us and we're doing everything that's right and everybody else is wrong. And Martha, she, she feels like she's busy doing all the right things and everyone's missing it. I mean, she's the one focused on serving Jesus in her home. I mean, this is an honorable role, right? This is something we would say, ah, oh, if Jesus came over, I would be a busybody. I'd be all over the place. Like, are you comfy? You got what you need? Put your feet up. Um, but in the midst of it, Jesus says, actually, that Martha's the one that's distracted. Martha's the one that's missed it. And here Jesus, he lays out his priorities. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha's missed the fact that intimacy takes priority over activity. Knowing and being known by Jesus before serving Jesus. Who we are and who we relate to is more important and flows into what we do. 
In Christianity, there are many good things we can be doing, but there is one thing that is necessary. Dependence. Stopping and listening to Jesus. Putting a pause button on all the important things in our lives to rest in the most important one in our lives. Parents, those of you who are dedicating your children this morning, families who have gathered around those dedicating their children, congregation who has come around to invite these children into our community, there's one thing that's necessary. Dependence upon Jesus. But what gets in the way of our dependence? What stops us from stopping? What stops us from listening? I think for a lot of us, we'd say, I just don't have enough time, right? My kids, my spouse, my work, my friends, God, I've got so much going on here. Good things, right? You've called me to these things. How about we pencil you in next Thursday? We'll have a cup of coffee. We'll make it a good go of things. And one of the biggest issues I think that many of us have, and many times I wrestle through, even as a pastor, is is Jesus is more like a hobby than he ever is the one who's holy. He's optional. He's extra. Not one we have to make time for, but the one we squeeze time for. And I love it when somebody tells me that they've been too busy lately for church or too crazy to be in God's word. No time to serve. No time to be in community. No time to pray. And I know I can be cynical here, um, so please forgive me, but my first thought is, who's not busy, right? We're all busy. We're all full of doing things. If Jesus is optional in your schedule, then he's a lot more like a hobby than he's ever been the Lord of your life. One thing is necessary. And you may even say, he's still an important part of my life, Gabe. Well, Jesus will never be a part of anything. He's either everything or nothing. And some, uh, some of us may say, and I've been in this camp before I was a pastor, and, I, and, and we get help. And we feel better about ourselves when we say this, but you say, yeah, but you're the pastor. You're paid to be good, you know? What else do you do besides preach on Sunday? You're supposed to say this. Um, but guess what? I struggle with this too. This is hard. Pastors get consumed with with making house calls, writing blogs, writing sermons, creating events, and we can completely isolate ourselves from Jesus even in the midst of working for Jesus. I think some of the best Marthas in the world are pastors, quite frankly. My work's never done, never. And some of you feel this way about your jobs as well. I mean, this isn't unique to the pastoral vocation. There are many nights I go to bed with tasks left undone, feeling like, There's so much more to do. And then there's the personal jazz. You know, you're you're watering your plants. You're walking your dog. So what do we do? No matter who we are, no matter where God's called us, what do we do? We need to learn to stop. Stop. And prioritize the right relationship. Are you daily taking time to sit at the feet of Jesus and God's word? Are you carving spaces of solitude And silence for God to speak to you. I mean, he is, he has spoken in his word. He is speaking through his spirit. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are are we listening? Many times when we enter into prayer, we feel like we're talking to no one. You know, that's, that's the hard piece of it sometimes. It's like, who am I talking to? It's so different than every other relationship. I'm not sitting here talking with Gary and we're going back and forth in terms of personal dialogue. But sometimes I wonder, too, if God feels like he's talking and no one's listening. (laughs) 
I have revealed myself throughout my word. I have given you my Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity dwelling within you. And yet, I feel like I'm talking to air. And this is why we're so passionate as a church about open here. Calling everyone to be in God's word daily, not legalistically, but to be immersing ourselves at some point throughout the day in God's word to hear afresh daily from him. One thing is necessary. So prioritize the right relationship. But Jesus, he not only highlights the priority of dependence, um, he also gives us a pattern of dependence. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, God become flesh, was intentional about extended periods of solitude with the Father in prayer. And he was the Son of God. I mean, wasn't he sent to serve and not be served? Wasn't he sent to come and heal the sick? What about all the broken institutions? What about those who are starving? What about telling the world about himself so that others don't go to hell for eternity? What about training his disciples? And hear me out, he spent a lot of time caring and serving for others. And yet he set a pattern of dependence. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus stepping back, stopping, and praying. Listening as fully God and fully man within the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he entered the discipline of dependence upon the Father on a regular basis. If we just look to a few examples in Luke, we see in chapter 3, verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, in chapter 6, verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. In chapter 9, verse 28 of Luke, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And in our passage this morning in Luke eleven one, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. The disciples, they saw their rabbi frequently entering into this pattern of dependence. And here in Luke 11, we find the only time that I can find ever in the, in the Gospels where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something. This is the only time, if you look throughout the Gospels that I can find, where the disciples are very intentional about Jesus, tell us how to do this. How do, we see you doing this all the time. Why don't you teach us like John taught his disciples? And it's a simple question. How do you pray, right? Well, I want to ask us, and once again, this isn't rhetorical. We did this last week, but what do you think of when you think of prayer? This isn't rhetorical, so I'm asking for response, and I'm going to put it on the board back here. What do you think of when you think of prayer? How would you describe prayer to someone? There are wrong answers, but for the sake of freedom, there are no wrong answers. So now how would you describe prayer? Don't be ashamed. Come on. Conversation. Conversation. Mm. Listening. Communication. What was that? Hmm? Labor. labor. Oh, laborious. Yes. Yeah. In a good way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not always. It doesn't feel that way. Adoration. Adoration. Great. Worship. Very good. Love. 
Maybe a love language. Confession. Intentional? Is that what someone said? Yes. Oh, oh, good. Intentional. I was making sure I wasn't hearing what I wanted to hear. You know, that's good. That's good. Continuing? Yeah, ongoing daily or yeah, 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 yeah. Never ceasing kind of? Yeah, okay. So never ceasing conversation. Very good. Ooh, intercession. We could get really pastoral and start doing some sort of alliteration here. Um, What else? Anything else? Prayer is a command. Knowing Jesus. Excellent. Ooh. Way to go. Knowing Jesus. Obeying God. Any other thoughts on prayer? It's personal. <laughs> well, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we know a lot about prayer. Um, and sometimes we have misconceptions about prayer. Um, these are all excellent answers. Thank you for brainstorming with us. It's just good to refresh and to challenge ourselves and to say, okay, what do I really think prayer is? What do I really believe that prayer is? And, you know, many times, and sometimes I've thought this, it's kind of like calling your parents when you were at college. <laughs> um, you knew it was important. You never did it enough, um, and then you felt guilty about it or you needed money. So you said, well, I better check in with them. Um, for Jesus, though, prayer is completely different, right? Prayer is the active recognition that I'm utterly dependent upon God as my Father. Prayer is the active recognition that I am utterly dependent upon God, my Father. Now, this concept of God as Father, it was revolutionary, quite frankly, to the Israelites. I mean, for the nation of Israel, prayer had always been focused toward God. But here Jesus is doing something new. He's using the word Abba, not, not the band, but the child-to-father affectionate name to address the Holy God. Richard Bauckham, he's this really renowned New Testament scholar. When talking about this name Father, he says, Jesus may have understood Abba to be the new name of God that corresponded to the new beginning, this new exodus, the new covenant with his people that God was initiating. It was the name by which the renewed Israel would know him, not, of course, superseding Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, as theologians would call it, but added as though it were the new substitute for the name that should not be said. When, when God interacted with Israel to bring about the exodus, he revealed himself and told his name to be Yahweh. It's not that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know who God was. But Yahweh, he reveals his name at the time of revelation and deliverance. And here, as he's doing something new in, God, or new in Jesus, he reveals himself to be Father. And we're invited into God's family. And we're invited to call God Father. Now, and I find myself in this camp that I'm about to say. Some of us, we have baggage with the concept of fatherhood, right? You don't naturally depend on your heavenly father because your earthly father wasn't all that dependable. You've learned to raise yourself. You've learned to fight for yourself. You've learned to accept yourself when no one else would. But it's time to talk to your dad up in heaven because he's so different. 
He's not associated with abusing his spouse, the church. He's not associated with running out on his children. He's not associated with abrogating his leadership or being too busy to listen. But he seeks the good of his family. And he's always willing to talk. He's waiting for you and for me to depend upon him as our father. You see, Jesus, he shows us that our father is a dad who cares. So we ask for his kingdom to come, right? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is where God gets done what he wants perfectly. And throughout scripture, we see heaven described that way. Where God is king and everyone obeys him and follows his demands. But the earth is still currently a war zone in one regard. Where God's kingdom is in battle with the forces of evil. And praying that our father's name would be hallowed and his kingdom would come is a request of utter dependence. It's saying we can't do it. You have to hallow your name. You have to bring your kingdom You have to do this for yourself. Yes, work through your church, but it is ultimately you who hallows your name. It is ultimately you who brings your kingdom. Only he's powerful enough and his kingdom good enough to bring the world we all long for, the world we all ache for, and the world we all need. Our father is a dad who cares. So we ask for his kingdom to come to break in and make this messed up world like heaven where his word, his will is done perfectly in his domain. But until then, God is still, we see a dad who provides. So we ask for his provision. Give us each day our daily bread. And Jesus, he makes it clear throughout his teaching of the New Testament that this is never less than physical, touchable food, but it's always more than that. It's never less than physical food, but it's always more than that. He cares and brings full sustenance to his children. He is the great provider. I remember in seminary, um, I was sitting, I was a, I was, it was my first semester, and I have, I hate debt, as I think everybody in here does. Who here loves debt, right? Oh, man, I can't wait to get more debt. Um, but I, I, was, I was taking on some student loans to go through seminary, and I was overwhelmed by the burden, knowing my pastoral vocation and the realities of, of, of school debt. And so I spent some time in prayer. And I was a butler at the time for a British couple, and I was a worship pastor and a janitor. So it was like this weird amalgamation while taking classes. And I was praying, and I just said, God, I just feel overwhelmed. I feel extremely anxious about my finances. Some of you have been there. And you're just, God, I don't know what, what you need to do, but you need to do something. <laughs> it's one of those desperate prayers. Just help me out. Uh, let me, remind me you care about my, you know, this financial situation because it's overwhelming me, at least with my personality. And, and later that afternoon, for one of our classes, we had to do like a cross-cultural. We got to do a cross-cultural ministry connection. <laughs> And I loved it, but it, you know, when you got everything else, you know, when you got so many good things going in your life, it's hard to add another good thing. But this was a really great thing. Um, I got to work with Exodus World Service, uh, which works with refugees who come into the United States. And they lived in this really blighted neighborhood. And what we would do in Exodus World Service is just be their buddy, you know. Um, many times they didn't know English, so you would go and you'd help teach them English or just help them navigate paperwork and be an, a partner to the social worker in one sense. Um, but more than that. And I remember getting in their elevator uh, 
And this, this smaller Asian lady came in. She was super sweet. She gave me a big smile. I said, good morning or good afternoon. I probably even said that because it was a rough day. Um, and she looks up at me. I never remember it. She goes, God's going to take care of your finances. And, you know, I tried to play it off. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Thanks. I know. <laughs> you know, Overly pious or something like that. It was like, oh, that's great. And she got out of the elevator and I go, oh, my goodness. It was unbelievable. This woman didn't know me at all. And God doesn't always work that way. So don't, you know, go home and then expect, you know, some older, shorter lady to come in and <laughs> shake up your world. Um, God works in his ways, which are always unique to our situation. But in my life, that was a huge moment where God was reminded me, Gabe, it's not going to be easy, but I'm there. I'm listening. I care about you. I'm providing. Look at the jobs I've given you. Look at the people, the rich people, not the butlers, the, the rich people, those in the Exodus World Service who are so caring and loving. Look at these friendships I've brought into your life. I'm there with you, and I'm going to take care of you. And even in the midst of all this, we can hear stories and we can have these stories happen to us and God can move mountains to provide for us. And yet we can still move mountains back to get away from him, can't we? Even after he's done these marvelous things for us. But thankfully, when we think of our heavenly father, we see that God is a dad who forgives He's a dad who forgives, so we ask for his forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. He's rich in love and mercy. He won't hold a grudge no matter how great our debt is to him. He's always willing to forgive. He's always in the driveway waiting for you to pull home, to give you a big hug. He's always calling your cell phone when you run away. He's always looking to give you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. He's that kind of dad. It's because of his forever forgiving heart toward us in Christ. We can come to the Father boldly before his throne of grace, as Scripture says, without fear. He's dependable even when we aren't. Even when we aren't. And finally, God is a dependable dad because he is a dad who delivers. So we ask for his deliverance. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. And this this isn't a cry for preservation from temptation. Let's be clear. But it's protection in the midst of it. Protection in the midst of temptation. He won't guard us against the trials of life, but he'll sustain us through death and through the valley of the shadow of death. He, He didn't do that even with Jesus, guard him from the trials of life, correct? We are not greater than our king. And he won't do that with you and me because he's forming us through it. But he will walk through it with us and he'll fight alongside of us. And many times for us because who are we, right? Um, in prayer, we admit our brokenness and our utter dependence on God's strength to protect us from ourselves many times and preserve us in this broken world. He's that good of a dad. And this is his pattern of dependence that Jesus gives us. This prayer to our Father. And I ask all of us this morning, and every time I ask these questions, I put myself in this, this, this zone. How, how are you doing at entering into this pattern? 
How are you doing entering into this pattern? We all need to, in one sense, dig better ruts of prayer in our life, right? You know those ruts you have, those practices and habits that you naturally slide into every morning. I love, personally, my morning time of reading and prayer, but looking at Jesus' practice, man, it challenges me. Not as consistent as I should be, and I can tell a difference in my day and how I start. Um, If I start by looking at email... Start by working on a project. Start by sending a text. My day tends to, to roll into anxiety and worry. Um, there's just too much to do on my own. And, and it starts this momentum of anxiety that's harder to subdue after it's started. Whereas when I begin by putting on a French press cup of coffee. <laughs> that's a, this is a key part to this discipline, this pattern of dependence. Um, Maybe a poor dependence. Uh, and then sit and spend time in prayer and in God's word. I still have the same stuff to do. But my heart has slid into the rut that's put me on the path toward dependence in God throughout the day. It slid me into that rut. Now, there are still some of us who, who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And you want to know, how do I know God will really hear and respond to my prayer? So many people in our lives have failed. So many people in our lives have failed us. And we think it's just safer to rely on ourselves, right? We're predictable. We at least know what we're going to do. So we come to prayer not really expecting anything to happen. What do we normally do when prayers are answered? It, just even as I told the story, and as we, uh, as we respond together, we, we respond in shock, right? God answered my prayer. Can you believe it? Well, Jesus, he isn't satisfied that we may have the priority of dependence and the pattern, but it's all kind of worthless if we don't have the approach of dependence. Right after Jesus told them the Lord's Prayer, he asks them a question. In chapter 11, verse 5, he says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, his brashness, he will give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You see, in Jesus' day, no neighbor would ever refuse the request to help another neighbor out. I mean, this hospitality culturally was so ingrained that it would be shameful for you to not get out of bed and give, give, a, give some bread to your neighbor. If some guest came into your town and they didn't have something to eat because your neighbor didn't have it, you would get out of bed no matter what the hour is. So Jesus is asking this long question and he goes, who of you has a neighbor like this? And, and everybody says, no one. All of our neighbors would get up at any hour of the night to provide bread. 
for those who, are, those who, are, who, who, do, who don't have the bread for, for their guests. And Jesus, he's not highlighting repetition here. He's not highlighting persistence in some degree. It doesn't say knock repeatedly or ask repeatedly or seek repeatedly. But instead, it's the man's boldness which should strike us all. His impudence is the language, the shamelessness to ask his neighbor no matter what the night, no matter what the hour is in the night. He had the courage to ask and he knew if he sought out his neighbor, he would get what he needed. And Jesus is saying, how much more will God do that for you when you're in need? Trust him, ask him, seek him and he will answer. Then Jesus asks, how many fathers they know, how many fathers do we know that enjoy harming their kids by playing tricks on them? We know some, <laughs> unfortunately. But when your child asks you for food, like a fish or an egg here, do you give them scorpions and snakes? No, of course not. You're not going to put their lives in danger and, and start laughing at your child when it gets bit by a snake or stung by a scorpion. Because you love them. And you have issues. You know, Jesus says, you're evil, and yet you still know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more God? Imagine, perfect in wisdom, always seeking our best, even when we're blinded by our worst, always loving us better than we can love ourselves. Now he hears his child cry out for him. Will he, the better father, not give us then his better gifts? If this is who God is, and this is the pattern of dependence he's called us into, Will he not respond? So many times we come to God like he's our boss rather than our father. We think we've had this good performance. So we have every right to ask for a raise, right? God, I've just been in the word, you know. Help the, la- you know, the lady next door take out her garbage. Um, I even paid extra, you know, on this. Uh, I, p- I spent a bigger tip on my waitress today. Um, so why don't you just show a little love? Whereas instead God's like, What does that have to do? You're my child. I love you. Nothing you can do can separate you from me. When you're in the depths of despair, because of your own fault, I'm there and I'm listening. What we need to do in prayer is replace our cynicism with this audacious trust that Jesus is highlighting here. Paul Miller, he says in his book, A Praying Life, to be cynical is to be distant. While offering a false intimacy of being in the know, cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. A praying life is just the opposite. It's engaged in evil. It doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was in God's face. Read the Psalms. Hoping, dreaming, asking. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. It's passive. Cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we're engaged in. Is this your approach to dependence? Do you come with cynicism or audacious trust? Is the God of our prayers dependable? Or is he favorites? Does he, does he play favorites with us because we happen to be good that week? You know, each of you this morning, whether you know it or not, are sitting in a place that is an answer to prayer. You're sitting in chairs that are an answer to prayer. I don't remember how many buildings we actually looked at over the years to finally be in this space this morning. Over and over again, we saw buildings fall through, and we asked the question, God, are you listening? 
We're here. We're gathering. We're trying to be a faithful presence in your city. Do you hear us? And I can stand here confidently saying, God brought us to the best space that I've looked at. I mean, we went through so many, and I never would have imagined it had been this great. Never. It is just, it's, we see God's provision, even in this, in the chairs you're sitting in. One thing is necessary. Dependence. Do you need to reprioritize your relationships to put God in the center? What is your pattern of dependence like? Are you digging deeper ruts of prayer and scripture? And what is your approach to dependence? Are you coming to God in cynicism or audacious trust? Now, I want to just take a moment. Um, We're going to do something slightly different. Um, We're not going to make Sunday morning so busy that we're not going to practice what we preach on this one. Uh, It was just too busy this morning, God, so we're not going to pray a whole lot. Um, So many times in our lives, we we shoot arrow prayers. God, help me. And then we move on. Um, Instead of sitting in the kitchen with God, drinking a cup of coffee as the bread's baking, right? Just sitting with God. And if you look throughout this prayer, they're all plurals. Let us, you know, forgive us. And so we're going to practice this together in a unique way. We're going to do what's called Lectio Divina. Some of you are like, oh no, what are we getting into? Um, this has been practiced through the church throughout the centuries. And what it is, is after studying a text of scripture, going deep within it, you read it slowly, allowing for space, allowing for time to reflect, and allow the Holy Spirit to actually speak to us and how God is speaking to us in this passage. It's slow, it's uncomfortable, but it's good. And may this maybe be an application or an additional element into your disciplines as your time together. So we're going to actually, I'm going to read through um, the Lord's Prayer, pausing and allowing for space and silence for you to reflect. So would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. In Romans 8, we're reminded that through Jesus, we're adopted into God's family. Through Jesus, we're given the spirit of sonship and daughtership, which we can cry, Abba, Father. And in this new family, God's spirit is ever-present, ever-interceding for us, even when we don't have the words. Some of us need just one little more pause for silence. Um, A moment to let God speak to you. What is that one thing you won't trust God with? 
It's causing anxiety and worry and it's distracting. It may be scary to even allow yourself to open up for the Spirit of God to reveal where you've been pushing God back. What is too big in your mind for God to handle? And in the words of Alfred Lord Tennyson, speak to him then, for he hears, and spirit with spirit can meet. Closer is he than breathing, and nearer than hands are feet. Let's take one more moment of silence. What is too big in your mind for God to handle? Allow him to speak to you, to release it over to him in prayer. Silence. Amen. Our Father, He provided a different kind of meal to show the world that He's a different kind of Father. Um, A meal that speaks of another kingdom coming where all who surrender to Jesus are welcome. A meal where we find our daily bread, remember our forgiveness, and are led to the cross rather than to temptation. It's at this meal we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Here at Christ Community, you do not need to be a member to partake in communion, but we ask that all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ would come to the table. And if you have not chosen to follow Christ and submit to his lordship, then we ask that you would would abstain from partaking. Know that this is an opportunity, not an obligation. So if you choose to take time for prayer and reflection, please feel free to do so. You're going to come through the front, though, if you do come. Circle around to the back to the two tables. And you'll partake in groups of four to six with the gluten-free bread. Dip it in the juice and partake together. Hear the words of the institution. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.